Well, this morning we begin to look into the Gospel of Luke, and we start talking through the, the ministry of Jesus that uh, in Luke chapter 4 begins in Galilee. It raises a question for us as we think about especially these opening words that Jesus will read from Isaiah chapter 61, where he's reading about the, the content and the purpose of his ministry, which is to preach good news. So what is the gospel? How have you described the, the gospel to others? What is its content? What is its purpose? And what are the features of the gospel that are important to communicate so that those who receive the gospel, who respond in faith, are responding to the message that is true and not some counterfeit? The heading of your notes and the the purpose and theme of our message this morning is this, that the gospel shatters self-glory. And that is one of the distinguishing features that would set the true gospel apart from the counterfeit gospel, that would set the gospel of Christ apart from the gospel that you will hear and receive from the, from the world itself, rather than a gospel that would seek to to build up your own self-worth, your own self-value, your own self-interest that would wrap you up in being uh, committed to self-satisfaction and comfort. Rather, the gospel of the scripture is a gospel that would press you in to satisfaction in God regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the things, the, tri the trials and tribulations you may experience in this world. And it is a gospel that we see in, the, in the, the gospel of Luke. It's a gospel that goes all the way back to the beginning and starts as early as Genesis chapter 12 and, and even earlier. The, but we see in Genesis chapter 12 the, the real beginnings of the gospel taking shape as God will establish for Abraham what we know as the Abrahamic covenant and, and, and set an expectation of what he will do for his people. Genesis 12 Verses 1 and 3, he says this to Abraham. He says, Go out from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, on the surface, that's the gospel we like. But the reality was, and Abraham's experience was that he would experience the gospel, the, the favor of God on his life from God himself. That while God sought to do this very thing in a physical way, what God was after was something much deeper, was after a true blessing and relationship with him established through a covenant relationship with God. So that Paul, in Galatians chapter 3, would, would pull from this Abrahamic covenant and say, this is the gospel, it was preached to you. But what is that gospel? What is the content of that gospel? Is it a, a gospel that is physical in nature, or is it a gospel that has a spiritual dimension that we can only enjoy as we come to understand who God is and what God has sought to do for us in pulling us to himself in correcting our greatest sin problem, our greatest problem, which was separation from him because 
of our wickedness and sin. From Genesis 12 on, God would seek to establish this promise. But Abraham would never experience the physical benefits of this promise in that he would be a nomad in the promised land for the entirety of his life. And while this contains a physical element, God was interested in the spiritual one, establishing a people for himself who would represent him to the nations. The people would not find their blessing in the land or in a heritage, not in power or world domination. They would experience their truest blessing as they came to have an abiding relationship with God himself. So Abraham, though, coming to the land of promise, would never, never settle down. He would be a nomad for the entirety of his life, as would his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob and his great-grandkids who would begin in the land but then make their way to Egypt initially as guests but ultimately to be slaves there in Egypt. For 430 years, they would remain But God would lead them out by a strong hand and an outstretched arm through the instrumentation of Moses. And he would lead them to Mount Sinai where again he would seek to establish again the basis for blessing which would come through a covenant, come through promise, come through relationship with God. And as you know, the people, while seeing God in the pillar of fire, the pillar of smoke, wanted something more, wanted something tangible, wanted something physical. And they wanted a worship that was a worship that they could see and touch and feel. God who was in the mountain, they wanted to bring down. They wanted to be able to to see in physical form. And so they asked of Aaron, make us gods like we had in Egypt. And the almost shocking Reality of Aaron thinking this was going to work invited the people not only to give him their gold ornaments and then make for themselves a god, but he had the audacity to call them to worship of Yahweh in Exodus chapter 32, verse 5, saying, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And it's the word Yahweh. This will be the trend for Israel. Importing a syncretistic kind of worship from the world, the kind of worship that was polluted by worldly thinking. They thought they could worship Yahweh on their own terms. They thought they could establish for themselves a worship that was physical in nature rather than following the procedures that God had set before them. And thus they showed they had a polluted view of God. They had a view of God that was corrupted by worldly thinking. It was a view of God that they had fashioned in their own mind and established for themselves. And as a result, their worship was corrupt and broken. So that the northern ten tribes, as the history would continue, would follow this same trend. Being conquered by Assyria in 722, This residue of thinking that they could import the worldly understanding of worship and and somehow combine it with worship of Yahweh, they thought they could come up and manufacture their own rules and worship God on their own terms. So that in 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 32 to 33, we see this polluted, confused worship 
as the people were experiencing the, the um, judgment and condemnation of God because of their sin of idolatry, they thought they could ask the king of Assyria to fix their problems by sending them a priest who would help to fix their worship problem and this priest would come and tell them how to worship, but it wasn't the worship that was anchored in the scripture. Notice, they also feared the Lord. That's the same word for Yahweh. And appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. That's the kind of idolatry we're going to face today in our passage. It's the kind of idolatry not of a golden calf, not the idolatry of setting up high priests or worshiping carved images, but the idolatry of fashioning in our own minds an image of God that is not the true image. The idolatry of the heart that would, that would set one's self on the stage of glory, that would seek self-interest and self-pleasure rather than the glory of God regardless of the difficulties one may experience. What image of God have you created in your own hearts today? Is it a version of Jesus that you follow the right recipe and you get the right solution? So that for kids, we do what God has called us to do. We obey our parents. We honor our father and our mother. And we work really hard and so we get a good grade. That's the formula and that's the solution in our minds. Or is the formula that we do the right things and we enjoy popularity? Or we win our competitions? Or we perform well on the piano or in music? That we don't get sick? That we get promotions? That life is comfortable and easy? The formula that we have, is it a formula that seeks to serve self? Or is it a formula that is oriented towards the true gospel, which is so dependent and so focused on glorifying God, whatever the cost. Jesus came to demolish the view of himself that would put ourselves at the center of worship. That is idolatry. He came to abolish self-glory that interrupts our true glory of God. And that's what we see in our passage today. I would encourage you to open your Bibles, if you would please, to Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14 and 15. If, you're, if you don't have a Bible uh, in the Pew Bible ahead of you, I think it's on page 859. You can join us there in Luke chapter 4. It says this, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. That's the objective of the gospel. The objective of the gospel is glory of God, that Jesus receives glory that he is due. And so the true gospel will first of all point to the glory of God. That's our first point this morning. We're gonna spend most of our time on this point. <laughs> and then we'll follow it up with the second point is the gospel will underscore the word of God. It focuses first on the glory of God. 
It will be bolstered and underscored by the word of God. This word glorified is a word that we're familiar with. It's the word doxadzo. Here it's a present passive participle, which means it is a a word that that would express the the nature of hearts that are in perpetual worship. They they glorified God. But as we're going to see in our passage this morning, their worship of Jesus was counterfeit. Their worship of Jesus was superficial. Their worship of Jesus was a worship that was dependent upon their own concept of what God and Messiah would do. And when Jesus corrected their understanding, they wanted nothing to do with him. As a matter of fact, at the end of our passage, they moved from marveling at Jesus to wanting to kill Jesus. Their receptive hearts were turned to rage as Jesus helped to expose the shaky foundations of their weak belief, the belief that they had that was counterfeit, making a God of their own image idolatry. And that's what Jesus came to do, to reveal the glory of God and to call people to worship of him, not a concept of him, but to the true gospel of who he was. In the Gospel of Luke, we see the story of Jesus that moves from his temptation and moves directly into his public ministry in Galilee. Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist. We saw that in chapter 3. In this event, Jesus is commissioned for ministry. He receives the empowerment and indwelling of the Holy Spirit who comes down upon him. He is confirmed by the Father as the Father speaks from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. But then Luke adds a brief editorial note, which will be important for our timeline this morning of understanding when do the things of Luke chapter 4 take place? Notice in chapter 3, verse 18, it says, So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them all that he looked or he locked up John in prison. That's a foreshadowing of what will happen, but hasn't happened yet. And we'll see the significance of that as we continue to move our way through our study today. The timing of this event is not recorded in Luke. The timing of this event is actually recorded for us in the Gospel of John. We'll look at that in a moment. Jesus is led by the Spirit after the baptism into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. In the wilderness, Jesus demonstrated his faith in God. He proved his sonship. He demonstrated this tested quality, qualified for ministry, this blamelessness of his heart, the ability of Jesus to have victory over Satan in committing himself to faith in God when there was no other way in terms of the desert to find any help for provision and protection. Now it appears as you read Luke chapter 4, verse 14, that the Galilean ministry begins immediately after the temptation. But what we're going to discover is that there's at least a 10-month, maybe even as long as a year-long pause of a Judean ministry that happens before he ever makes his way to Galilee. 
And that will be important because as we, as we begin to, to look at the narrative in chapter 4, verses 14 to 30, we ask ourselves the questions, what is going on here? How, why is Jesus so direct? Why, is his, why are his words so inflammatory? And we begin to recognize that they're based upon an expectation that the people had because of a ministry he had already in Judea. And because of that ministry in Judea, there was a certain level of, of expectation. Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, helps us some more with this timeline when it says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Speaking of John the Baptist and speaking of Jesus. Mark will reinforce this in Chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, when he says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Of course, in Luke, chapter 3, John is not yet in prison, and there's no mention of his imprisonment in chapter 4. But we need to understand that in terms of time, there is a ministry that is happening, again, as much as a year of ministry that's taking place, and we don't find that picture until we go to the Gospel of John. Luke wants to key in, and he emphasizes his Galilean ministry because he wants us to appreciate how Jesus will minister to Gentiles, that his ministry came to, to gather the Jews and Gentiles to himself. And so starting the, the narrative of Jesus there in Galilee helps to reinforce that picture, and he will continue that picture for us as the church begins in the book of Acts. But John has another uh, priority, and that's why we find more of his ministry, Jesus' ministry, there in Jerusalem showing up in the first few chapters of the Gospel of John. So keep your finger in the Gospel of Luke. Turn with me, if you would, to the Gospel of John. And I want to give you a, a brief tour of the first four chapters to help you get some appreciation for what is taking place here in our narrative in Luke so that you can understand what was on the hearts and minds of the people and why Jesus confronts them so directly. In John chapter 1, Jesus comes from the wilderness after being tempted, and he ends up moving back into the same region where John the Baptist is. Notice in verse 28 or 29 that John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is in proximity. Jesus is in the same region, and John is directing attention to Jesus. That's what the gospel will do. The true gospel points the glory and the credit and the focus to God. John, preeminently as a forerunner of Jesus, ensures that his ministry is, is punctuated by that quality. And then in verse 36, he says the same, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what you find in the remaining parts of chapter 1 is that, is that some of the disciples overheard uh, John the Baptist speaking and when he, John the Baptist, directed attention to Jesus, Andrew and another disciple said, we've got to check this out. So Andrew and this other disciple who, who goes unnamed spend the day with Jesus. And they begin to see his ministry. They begin to, to recognize that there is a quality about Jesus' life that is true and authentic, that he is the Messiah. And so, 
So Andrew goes and gets his brother, Simon, and says, we have found the Messiah. Come and take a look. And Jesus, in this narrative, John chapter 1, verse 42, will look at Peter and say, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Then at the end of John chapter 1, Jesus takes a little detour up into Galilee. It's about a three-week trip. It says the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. That's in chapter 1, verse 43. And this is where he sees Philip. Philip, and he says to him, follow me. Philip, also impressed by the ministry of Jesus, goes and gets his brother Nathaniel. The two of them become disciples of Jesus. And then Jesus will go to a wedding there in Cana in John chapter 2. This will be the, the, the time, of course, when Jesus does his first miracle. We see that in John chapter 2, verse 11. This, it says, the first signs Jesus did at Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The disciples, again, captured by the glory of Jesus, recognizing there was not only authority in his words, but there was power. Confirmed by the power of God, the indwelling spirit of God working in Jesus' ministry to continue to draw attention to God's glory. And the disciples believed in him. Jesus will then return to Jerusalem. And in the next scene, we'll see that Jesus will cleanse the temple. He returns to Jerusalem after about three weeks. He cleanses the temple. He performs various number of signs there in Jerusalem. And a result of those works in Jerusalem, the people are going crazy. Who is this guy? Notice John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. What in the world is going on there? The people coming to expect the ministry of Messiah, coming to have this expectation of the the miracle working power of this Messiah-like figure are going crazy because they see that Jesus, this prophet, is carrying out the very things that they had on their mind. Their expectations were finally being met. Jesus was the guy. But their faith, faith that that they demonstrate here in this scene is a faith that Jesus sees as counterfeit. Because Jesus knows that as his ministry continues, that the faith that they have was a faith that was manufactured. This expectation of a God of their own image, this making of a man whom they had had dreamed about and, and wanted to have this physical deliverance, he would come and do spiritual and physical works And here he was. But they were believing in a gospel that wasn't authentic. Below the surface, there is this shaky foundation of self-glory rather than God-glory. Jesus then catches the attention of Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who was also in Jerusalem and is beginning to wonder for himself, who is this guy? And notice... In John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, 
Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to, to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Notice where Nicodemus's attention is on the physical Recognizing there must be some spiritual element, there was a confirmation of God and Jesus, then in the next several verses, will begin to expose all of the fallacies of Nicodemus's heart in putting confidence in self-merit. Nicodemus, who had risen to the highest levels of spiritual power, religious power in Jerusalem, being one of the rulers of the Jews, part of the Sanhedrin, one of 70 men in all of Israel who had risen to the top. And here he was, asking questions to Jesus. Nicodemus, in every way, had performed, had memorized, had followed all the procedures. But Jesus would tell him in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, in verse 5, unless one is born of water in the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Nicodemus, you need a do-over. Nicodemus, all the working out of law and ritual, all the conformity to the Mosaic law, all the rising and recognition that you're getting in Jerusalem is not enough. You need a spiritual birth. You need God to do something for you that you cannot do for yourself. You need to set your expectation on things that are spiritual rather than the things that are physical. That, the, that, the, that religion doesn't serve yourself. It's not about self-glorying. It's not about rising to the highest levels of religiosity. It's about glorifying God himself. Where is your confidence? Where is your faith, Nicodemus? You need to be born again. And it's not something you can do for yourself. You have much to do with your spiritual birth as you did with your physical one, and that is nothing. Nicodemus, you can't do this yourself. You have nothing to do with your physical birth, and thus you have nothing to do with your spiritual one. It is only a work of God, as John will carry as a theme from start to finish. In John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, we read, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This morning, if you are a believer, it is a work that God has done for you. You have nothing in which to boast. There is no merit. There are no credentials that you bring to the table. There is only ruin. There is only ungodliness. There is only wickedness of our hearts, the depravity within. And yet God, through his son Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, the perfect man, paid the penalty for sin, died on the cross for your sins and for my sins, and invites us into fellowship with God, into faith with Jesus Christ. Do you believe? Jesus, we see in the next scenes in chapter 3, is now in the region of the Jordan. 
after Jesus, it says in verse 22 and 24, it says, after this Jesus, speaking of his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anan near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. There's a key, key, key truth for us to remember. All of this taking place still before John was put in prison. Here Jesus moves into this region, is baptizing with his disciples. As we're going to find a, a little later, Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were baptizing. And the growing popularity of Jesus becomes troubling to the disciples of John the Baptist. So they come and they ask John this question. What is going on? We see in verse 26 of chapter 3. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And this essential statement from John the Baptist that continues to reinforce the authenticity of a gospel that points to the glory of God. John as forerunner says, he must increase, but I must decrease. The gospel is about the glory of God, not about the glory of men. And John, as the perfect forerunner, helps to establish the fact that the gospel is about God and pointing to God. The crowds in Jerusalem and the region of the Jordan looked on Jesus' ministry with favor. This growing popularity was gaining attention not only from those living in the region but also by the Pharisees and we find in chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 that Jesus needs to make a course correction in his ministry. He says in John chapter 4, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, we find that he makes his way to Galilee. But first, he's going through Samaria. And you know the story in John chapter 4 of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well and how the whole village will come out and they will recognize that Jesus is Messiah and they will be drawn to this message. And then we find in chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, excuse me, in chapter 4 of John, verses 43 and 45, after two days, this is two days of being in the village of Samaria, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Now we're beginning to understand the expectation. Now we're beginning, uh, as it were, to be able to appreciate the reason why Jesus needs to be so direct. Because in Nazareth and in Galilee, they had... Um, created in their own minds a sense of expectation Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus is going to fix my physical problems and Jesus needs to help correct that the message of the gospel is a message about the glory of God not a message about the glory of men or fixing human issues and so we find ourselves now back in Luke chapter 4 verses 14 
in 15. Jesus then begins his Galilean ministry. A ministry that was in tune and sought to draw focus to the glory of God over and against the glory of men. We're going to see this uh, briefly this morning, but spend some more time next week and in the following weeks developing this next point. that The gospel will underscore the word of God. Not only does it point to the glory of God, but will underscore, be bolstered by, will stand on the foundations of the word of God. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 and 21. I'll just read this for us and make some, a few comments and then I seek to apply it to our hearts. It says, And he came, speaking of Jesus, to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And, he, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who were oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your reading. All the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. Why? Because every eye in the synagogue was waiting. They were waiting for something spectacular. And Jesus was not going to give it to them. Because Jesus wanted to underscore the ministry of the word of God for the glory of God, not for the glory of men. So when they heard these words of this messianic prophecy from Isaiah chapter 61, they heard that Jesus would not only proclaim good news to the poor, but he would fix all the poverty in Israel. When they heard that Jesus was going to proclaim liberty to the captives, they thought that Jesus as Messiah would deliver them as a people from the oppression that they faced of the Roman Empire. When they heard that he has said um, that, that God was going to proclaim uh, sight to the blind and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, they felt that, that Jesus as this Messiah figure was going to fix their blindness, was going to fix their demon oppression, was going to fix their leprosy, fix all their physical ailments, and Jesus was not going to perform a miracle that day because he had a greater miracle in mind. The miracle of changing a heart. The miracle of helping them to see the truth of the gospel that came to give glory to God, not to fix human problems. We'll be looking at that more as we go in the coming weeks. Jesus was interested in helping them to understand the true gospel. The true gospel that was going to fix their deepest problem, was going to rescue them from their sin, was going to restore them back to true fellowship with God. What is truly surprising is this initial response that we see that everyone marveled at the gracious words that he was speaking. This receptive audience, and you think, ah, what a perfect opportunity to begin to, to, to gain a following. And what happens? Five verses later, we see 
in verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. They wanted to kill him because they hated the true gospel. The true gospel of pointing to the glory of God that did not meet their physical issues, did not have them at the center. They hated it, and they wanted to destroy this prophet from Nazareth, from their hometown, because the gospel for them was offensive. The gospel for them did not meet their expectation. They had fashioned for themselves an idea, a concept of who Messiah would be. They had created a counterfeit gospel and Jesus sought to abolish and destroy them at the very heart of that gospel. It's easy to read a story like this and say, ha, huh, how did they make such a big mistake? But we finish with this question that brings the same question home to us. The question is, has the gospel shattered self-glory in my heart? Has the gospel shattered self-glory in your heart, in my heart? That's what the true gospel will do. The gospel of the world is a gospel that is good news because it gives you good stuff. That's the gospel of the world. And so many times, we have done exactly what Israel has, had done. We import the ideas, the philosophies from the world. We seek to blend it with our concept of God, and so we make for ourselves a new gospel, which is a counterfeit. We say, the gospel is good because the gospel gets me to heaven. The gospel is good because the gospel gives me a family of people who care. The gospel is good because I get forgiven for my sin and it removes all of the guilt that I feel. The gospel is good because it helps my marriage, it helps my kids, it helps me not to be sick. All of the good things that I get from the gospel and that is why it's good, but it is counterfeit. We also talk about a gospel that is good because it keeps me from bad things like hell. What gospel are we selling? What gospel are you communicating to the people in your workplace? What gospel are you communicating to your family, to your neighbors, to the people who you spend time with in your various circles? What if God decided not to do any of those things? What if God decided not to answer your prayer? Would he be enough? David Brainerd, who was a missionary to the native Indians in the 1700s, in dealing with a group of people who believed that pleasing the spirits would allow them to have children, that pleasing the spirits would allow them to find good hunting grounds, or would allow them to have success over their enemies, or would allow their crops to flourish. And David used to ask these Indians, what if God decided that the best way to receive glory was to send you to hell? Would you be okay with that? 
course, David was pointing to the kind of gospel that puts God at the center. The kind of gospel that puts him on display where God is enough regardless of the decisions he might make about your future destiny. But we're not so different, are we? We're not so different from those who were, who were standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. We're not so different from the audience that was listening to Jesus' message in Luke chapter four. We want to import for ourselves the things that make us comfortable. That's the gospel we want. But that is not the gospel of the Bible. There's no wonder why we're so disappointed when things don't work out. There's no wonder that when we follow the formula and the solution doesn't give me the happy marriage or the obedient children, I begin to wonder if the, if the Bible is really true. We're disillusioned, we're confused, we're angry. We feel bitter against God. He has not performed according to my expectation, but it is, a, it is an expectation of my own making. I followed the formula, it didn't work. We have invented a performance-based idea about God, and God is not enough. May God help us as we begin to understand, as we pull back the layers of the Sunday school Jesus that we've all come to, to appreciate. We begin to recognize the true gospel through the life of Jesus, through the chronicle of, of the gospel of Luke. We'll begin to see that Jesus came to expose us at our core. And it's not a pretty picture, but it is a necessary picture because God intends to get you to heaven. He's not just satisfied with a happy life here. He wants something greater for you than a happy life. He wants an eternity with you in heaven. He wants to increase your faith. He wants to maximize your joy. He wants to give you strength and exalt his testimony through his life that sometimes only happens when things are really bad. Is God enough? Is the gospel that you and I hold to and subscribe to, does it have its moorings in the gospel of the Bible? in the glory of God, in the word of God, independent of the benefits. May God help us as we walk through this journey to come and to understand the true gospel so that we can be faithful to present that gospel to the people that we love the most because eternity is in jeopardy if we have the gospel wrong, if our confidence is in the wrong place if it's about self-glory instead of about God-glory. May God help us as we come to understand this true gospel of Jesus, that he will clear our attention and direct our hearts to him so that he is pleased. And he will ultimately say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the bold, confrontational ministry of Jesus that he was more interested in eternal grace and not just grace for the moment, not just allowing his relationship with the people there in Nazareth to be happy, to be comfortable, to enjoy the gracious words, but that he was helping to expose the desperate need that they had, the idolatry of their hearts, in making for themselves a God that was not 
consistent with the God of the scripture. Do the same for us, we pray. Help align our focus in our hearts to know the true gospel so that we can present that gospel to others. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming this morning. God bless you.